Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to a study on the Mikra A Kodesh Holy Convocations. I'm the author Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. This is a study on the minor feasts, and we're going to talk about the festival of Purim, the festival of Lots. The um, written commentary was updated on December 26th of 2005. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern. Jewish New Testament publications incorporated unless otherwise noted. The um, studies on the minor feasts that I've been doing, uh, of course, they are meant to um, complement the studies on the major feasts. And the way I'm differentiating between the two is the major feasts are those which are listed in Leviticus 23, and the minor ones are those which are not. But for the study on the minor feasts, I've chosen to use a, um, an inspirational passage taken from the Apostolic Scriptures. Second Timothy 2.15, rendered from the KJV, reads like this, quote, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. End quote. The festival known as Purim, and um, my, my pronunciation there, Purim, is not like the usual pronunciation that you're going to hear in many circles. In fact, you'll hear it called Purim, 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 um, Purim, something to that effect. Uh, it is, in fact, correct to say it as Purim. Um, let me give you a mnemonic. You remember that l lovable cartoon character by the name of Winnie the Pooh, the bear? Well, say his name first, Pooh, and then remember that a stack of paper that you can buy from the store in, in a stack of 100 sheets usually is called a ream. So put those two together, Pooh-ream, and you get the name of our festival, Pooh-ream. Now it is a time of merrymaking and festivities, so I'm going to have a lot of fun with it. I hope you do too. That's why I introduced the uh, humorous mnemonic that I just did. Anyway, this festival is not one of the biblically mandated feasts that are found within the listing of Leviticus chapter 23. No, this feast and its beginnings are found within the secular book of Esther. Yes, I said it right. Esther is called a secular book. And that's because, according to the rabbis and their halacha, the name of the of um, of our God of Hashem is found nowhere in the book. Now, that's not to say that our God isn't working behind the scenes invisibly. He is. He's in the book, but his name's not in the book. And so, uh, for that reason, the scroll of Esther, sometimes called the Megillah of Esther, uh, is not considered a sacred scroll, and therefore may be handled, as it were, by common folk. And again, that's according to um, rabbinic halacha. This scroll is often decorated as well to commemorate the festive story that's found within its pages. We're going to read portions of the book of Esther uh, during this study. I'm not going to read the entire, um, uh, the entire story. However, it is tradition to read the entire story 
during um, this time period. In fact, I think it's also halacha that you read the story of Purim. So just read the entire book of Esther. It's only nine, I'm sorry, ten chapters long. Um, and uh, it, it's a good read. It's an, inspi- it's an inspiring read. And it's a necessary read. Any part of the Bible is a necessary read. Let's go on to my commentary. This next section is entitled Megillah, the Scroll of Esther. The story of Queen Esther is traditionally read on Purim, as I mentioned earlier, and I'll not take the time to recount all of the events found within that book. Rather, I will simply pull out for the commentary a couple of verses that will serve to summarize the story. Let me pick up the reading in chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 23 through 28. Okay, here we are. Quote, So the Jews took it upon themselves to continue what they had already begun to do, and as Mordechai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamdata, the Agaki, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had thrown Pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, she ordered by letters that Haman's wicked scheme, which he had plotted against the Jews, should recoil on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. That is why these days have been called Purim, after the word Pur. Thus, because of everything written in this letter, and what they had seen concerning this matter, and what had come upon them, the Jews resolved and took upon themselves, their descendants, and all who might join them, that without fail they would observe these two days in accordance with what was written in this letter, and at the appointed time every year, and that these days would be remembered and observed throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim would never cease among the Jews, or their memory be lost by their descendants." Now, as the passage mentioned, Purim is a two-day festival. Um, As I'm making this recording, it is March of 2007, and this year Purim is going to fall on... Uh, the bulk of it is going to fall on Sunday and Monday, March the 4th and the 5th, even though we know that um, Jewish festivals start in the evening, so really Purim starts on Saturday night at sundown. Um, the uh, text also tells us that it is a two-day feast. In fact, in chapter 9, starting in verse uh, 17, it says, So on the 14th day of Adar, they rested and made it a holiday for celebrating and rejoicing. However, the Jews of Shushan assembled on both the 13th and the 14th days of Adar, so it was on the 15th that they rested and made it a holiday for celebrating and rejoicing. So we see, um, in fact, in verse 19 goes on to say, This is why the Jews of the villages, those who live in unwalled towns, make the 14th day of the month of Adar a day for celebrating and rejoicing, a holiday and a time for sending each other portions of food. As I mentioned, it's a festivity. Um, a two-day festival, especially in the Diaspora, where the rabbis have determined that many um, of the uh, Jewish festivals or the biblical festivals um, should span a two-day time period. So, with the above-supplied verses providing us with the biblical reference to Purim, let's turn to a historical background treatment of this holiday. Um, According to my studies, most scholars place the incidents of the Book of Esther around 470 BCE, uh, before the Common Era. And this coincided with the events and locations of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Some have even suggested Ezra and Nehemiah as the author, although Mordechai has been the traditional candidate. The story surely takes place when the tribes of Israel, designated as Yehuda in the story, were exiled to Bavli, which is Babylon. Remember, they were under um, they were under God's punishment because they had diso- disobeyed Hashem, and as a result, he exiled the both northern and the, finally the southern tribes. Thus, the people were already in despair because they knew they were in judgment. Uh, they were in despair as the events of the book of Esther unfold. Russell L. Resnick of the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, the UMJC, makes this noteworthy statement in a commentary to Purim on his website. Let me pull that quote. Uh, he, he goes on to say, quote, The book of Esther, which we read during Purim, reflects the topsy-turvy world of exile. Israel's destiny is governed by an emperor who is more klutz than king, threatened by a villain who is equally laughable, and saved through the charms of an, assa- of an assimilated young Jewess who just happens to be queen. <laughs> Perhaps it is such oddities that led the Jewish sages to ask, where is Esther mentioned in Torah? The answer that the rabbis put forth, as uh, Russ Resnick quotes, is in the phrase, quote, I will surely, surely hide my face. The Hebrew says, Hastar panai, on that day, I will surely hide my face. And the quote, of course, is from Deuteronomy 31.18. And so what ends up happening is, um, as I insert my own um, note to Russ Resnick's comment there, uh, the rabbis uh, use Midrash, or actually they use Sud, to insert the book of Esther into the book of Deuteronomy. Russ Resnick goes on to say, quote, Esther's name reminds us of Hester Panim, the hiding of God's face, and her story unfolds in a day when God seems hidden. When the king issues an, an irreversible decree that all the Jews in his empire are, be, are to be destroyed, there is no divine intervention, no divine spokesman in the person of prophet or sage, only cousin Mordecai, who tells Esther uh, that she must do something, and Esther does the right something, which saves her people. End quote. I lifted that um, uh, quotation from his website, uh, umjc.net, and then they've got, uh, actually I think they're running the article on Purim right on the front page. You can read the entire article there. Let's move on. This next section of my commentary is entitled, God's Invisible Hand. The events surrounding the Purim story have long since been attributed to divine intervention, and rightfully so. Even though we don't see God's name show up, we know that God is intervening in the events of history. Um, For even though um, the... uh, 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 the events unfold, and we we see some um, some bad things happen, or some plots uh, against the Jewish people. We know that it is God who is making good on His promise to Avraham, Isaac, and Yaakov to protect their offspring and to bless them, and to bless those who bless them, His offspring, and to curse those who curse them, His offspring. And we know that's what's happening in this book. So we know that God is doing. Uh, the miraculous, even though we don't see him doing it visibly. Uh, Surely it is God's mighty hand which delivers the Jews from the evil plot of Haman. Now, um, with that in mind, some might say, well, Ariel, it's just coincidence. It's just coincidence. God doesn't necessarily have to intervene every time. Sometimes coincidences happen, and God doesn't necessarily have to get the credit for those things. Really? Well, then consider these four coincidences, alright? You tell me if you think if they're coincidences or not. Coinc- and of course I've got the word 
coincidence um, in my written commentary written in uh, air quotes or quotes there, quotations. I'm making air quotes with my fingers. You can't see it. All right, consider these coincidences. Number one, if Amalek hadn't aligned themselves against God's chosen people, the bitter ongoing war with, war with them would not have produced a people who would forever be identified as the enemies of the Jews. Read Exodus 17, verses 8 through 15 for that note. Coincidence number two. If King Shaul had destroyed all of the Amalekites, whom the sages teach was completely assembled together that day, as Hashem had ordered him to uh, do, you can read 1 Samuel chapter 15 for that um, story, then there would have then there would not have been born a Haman, descendant of that wicked king Agag. Read Esther 3, verse 1, where we learn that Haman is a descendant of Agag. Hmm. Coincident number 3. Coincidence number 3, I should say. If Esther had not been in the right place at the right time, the demise of the Jews might have been certain. Read Mordecai's statement in Esther 4, verses 12 through 14. And then lastly, coincidence number four, if Mordechai had not been in the right place at the right time, the Jews' demise might have been certain. Read Esther chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, as well as chapter 6, verse 1 through 13. So, coincidence? Still think it's coincidence? That's, a lot of lo- that's an awful lot of ifs, if it's just coincidence. No, surely God was operating in the background. So we see that even though God's not specifically mentioned, surely he was with his people. For the God we serve does not leave circumstance to chance. He doesn't just turn his back and say, gee, I hope it all works out okay. No, he's always leading, guiding, instructing, and protecting those who are his own. He looks after his children, even in the midst of their disobedience. Remember, Judah was exiled for her gross idolatry, and you can reference the entire book of Jeremiah uh, for that information. However, Haman, or some of you know him as Haman, the Jew hater, he could have learned a thing or two from reading the Torah of Moshe, don't you think? Uh, In fact, all my little coincidences uh, that I just not lined up or named there, if Haman would have read the Torah, he perhaps would not have tried to pull the, the stunt that he tried to pull. If he would have learned that to align himself against God's chosen people uh, is to align himself against God, then he wouldn't have tried to destroy God's people. Indeed, every single wicked nation down through history that has plotted to destroy the Jews has met with the wrath of Hashem and has consequently all but been wiped from the face of the earth. You see how that works? We, we can't fight against God. Bible prophecy, for instance, tells us of eight famous wicked kingdoms. I'd like to list them here in my commentary and provide a brief summary. Here's a summary of those kingdoms, the eight that I mentioned. Um, actually, I'm going to mention six and then maybe talk about the two later. Uh, but here's a summary of those kingdoms, its ruler or its main leader, and the Bible reference that I found it from. Um, I believe they're in this order as well, historically, okay? First one is Egypt. Um, the ruler, of course, was the Pharaoh. And you can read about that country and its ruler in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 through 16, as well as chapter 5, verse 2. 
the second um, wicked kingdom, and I'm using the word wicked in the sense that they allied themselves against God's people. In and of themselves, I don't think they were wicked. Uh, I, I, I don't have anything against any of these countries, personally. I'm just talking about what the Bible records to be kingdoms and kings who have decided that the Jewish people, or God's people, were not worthy of existing in this world, and they tried to uh, exterminate them, alright? So we've got Egypt with the Pharaoh, then the number two, we've got Assyria with Shalmaneser, Uh, you can read about them, or that country, in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, and then the third one is um, Bavli, which is Babylon, and with their ruler uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, Nebuchadrezzar, um, you can read about them in Jeremiah 25, verse 9, as well as 39, verse 1. And you can see the, the king name there. The next country or the uh, um, nation is the, the Medes and the Persians, Medo-Persia. And, of course, that's where we're at right now, where we read about Haman um, being the main character or the, the instigator, the one who wants to exterminate the Jewish people. You can read about him in Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, as well as chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Moving on historically, we find the fifth country being Greece, uh, with Antiochus Epiphanes. Now I know, again, as far as these leaders are concerned, um, they were not necessarily the leaders of their countries. Uh, Antiochus um, came after uh, Alexander the Great, obviously. But Antiochus is the one who was the fierce Jew hater. And you can read about him in Daniel chapter 8, verse 11, as well as chapter, uh, verse 23 through 25. And then the sixth one that I wanted to bring to mention in my commentary was Rome. And at the time of um, fierce anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism, we find Herod uh, occupying the center spot. You can read about him trying to wipe out the Jewish babies in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Now, these above-mentioned six are recorded for us in the Bible so that we might know that the word mentioned to Avraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, about those who bless Avraham will be blessed, and those who curse or speak lowly or think lightly of Avraham's offspring will be cursed. We, we, we know that that's true just by reading the accounts of these countries or these nations. The Bible also alluded to the seventh and even soon to come eighth evil empire, which will bo- uh, which both sought and will to seek to destroy the Jewish people again. Um, in fact, if you turn forward in your Bible to Revelation chapter 17 verse 10 and 11, we're given a glimpse of the past, present, and future of the evil Antichrist and his wicked kingdoms. And in that chapter, in verse 10, it states concerning his wicked kingdoms that five have fallen, which, if you go back and look at my list, the five that are fallen correspond to one through five in my list above. Uh, One is, John says, and the one that yet exists in John's day corresponds to number six above, which, of course, would be Rome. And John goes on to say that one is yet to come. That would be number seven. Now, I personally believe that by using the criteria mentioned in Revelation chapter 17, verse 10b, that the seventh wicked kingdom very well might have been Nazi Germany uh, with its wicked Jew-hating ruler Adolf Hitler. I can't be dogmatic about that, but um, it, seems, it seems very plausible that it could have been Nazi Germany, uh, the seventh 
kingdom who came on the scene and did not last for very long. Uh, and Hitler's Germany lasted only, what, 11 or 12 years, something like that. Certainly this kingdom, uh, uh, Nazi Germany, uh, like the previous six, persecuted the Jewish people. And even down to this day in, in our modern history, 20, 20th and 21st centuries, uh, Nazi Germany carries the most notoriety uh, as far as um, Jew-hating countries uh, down through history. Uh, the Holocaust is, is a very, very, um, how should I say, um, real event that's very hard and should not be uh, easily forgotten in the minds of everyone. At any rate, um, certainly this ruler, like the previous six, uh, uh, Hitler, hated the Jews and aligned himself against them. So, again, my speculation as to uh, Germany being the seventh kingdom mentioned in, in Revelation chapter 17 is not too far off base. And even though Hitler himself boasted, as I mentioned, that his Third Reich would last for a thousand years, this kingdom lasted only a short space. And that's exactly what the KJV assigns to this seventh kingdom, a scant uh, 12 years, as I have written in my commentary. Thanks be unto God that the Holocaust only lasted uh, within that 12-year time span. Imagine what might have happened if uh, Hitler would have had his way and it would have lasted longer. I shudder. At any rate, let's move on in my commentary. History seems to repeat itself, and yet the sobering truth is that the Bible prophesies that one final empire will arise in our day, I believe, to persecute the people of God again. And this time, the persecution, I believe, will not be um, limited to the Jewish people. I believe that the Antichrist who comes to power within these these days, these last days, will actually also turn on genuine professing Christians. Now, this beast, or this empire that I'm talking about, is the eighth mentioned in Revelation chapter 17, verse 11. And in some mysterious way, I don't claim to know exactly how, he, this eighth empire, this eighth wicked ruler, he will be a composite of the original seven. So it's worth studying Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and possibly Nazi Germany. It's worth studying these previous um, empires and their wicked schemes because we can kind of get a glimpse of what this eighth um, monster will be like, this, um, this, this, this wicked ruler who's to come on the scene in a very short time, I believe. In fact, that's why we're studying the um, commentary on Purim. We are really trying to get a lesson in anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. This eighth um, beast, um, be, because he's a composite of the original seven, seven uh, the book of Revelation seems to hint at the fact that he will also gain his strength from the campaigns and the strategies, uh, if you could call it that, that the previous seven have utilized um, considering that fact, he, he it, it's it's really proper to say that he might be, uh, um, um, he might have the totality of the knowledge of those original um, kingdoms rolled up into one kingdom. He truly is a monster. Um, he will truly be uh, wicked, incarnate, and um, in fact, we know that the Book of Revelation describes that uh, the the adversary himself, Hasatan, will will actually uh, empower this beast. And and if it were, as it were, if I could use the language, he will um, be this wicked ruler incarnate. 
The devil incarnate is what I'm talking about. So, considering the qualities of the previous seven rulers, this final evil ruler, this hater of God's chosen people, will be heinous indeed. Because Christians are grafted in Israel, as I mentioned, they will be persecuted. Mark my words. Be prepared. Now, it's easy to distance ourselves from the likes of this world's Hamans. We suppose. However, we as believers in Messiah Yeshua would never speak or think evil of the offspring of Avraham. Right? Or would we? In fact, there is a challenge to the church today. And the challenge is this. And it comes from me. Have we unknowingly pitted ourselves against the chosen people? Think about that for a moment. Now those of you who've listened to my commentary and listened to per, per, uh, uh, particularly the commentary called Parashat uh, Lech Lecha, Genesis chapter 12, are going to recall some of the information that I'm about to speak on. In fact, I use this information taken from my commentary to Parashat Lech Lecha. This next section in my commentary is entitled Anti-Semitism. <laughs> 